My guest today is Dante Stewart. He's author of Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. Dante was named by Religion News Service as one of 10 up-and-coming faith influencers. He is a writer and speaker whose voice has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, ESPN's The Undefeated, Sojourners, and more. As an up-and-coming voice, he writes and speaks into areas of race, religion, and politics. Dante received his BA in sociology from Clemson University. He is currently studying at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, Dante, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, no doubt, brother. So good to be with you, man. Likewise. So let, we'll start with uh, softball, you know, cool, you're probably cool. constant answering. Um, what, what's the response to the book been like? And um, any, any responses that you found or pushback that you found surprising that you didn't expect? Yeah. So so most of the response of the book has, I think, has been generally positive. You know, I, one of my friends who's a writer, he was like, yo, you, you aimed high in this book. You know, it was a risky type of book to write, especially as a debut debut book. Um, and one of the things I started to realize over time, you know, as the months have gone on, that whole kind of risky writing is particularly the kind of style, the tradition, the space that I'm writing into. Um and, and and that you know, it, it it's it's a risk when you go into that space, and and the risk kind of unfolds, uh, but a, it's a risk nonetheless. And so the response though has been generally positive for the book. I think many of the criti- criticism for the book would be stylistically, and I and I pay attention to that as a writer. Um, so uh, every every now and then, you know, I'll kind of you know kind of listen to a a. a kind of negative review and most of the negative reviews hasn't been content wise but you know as 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 relates to you know craft as a writer and things like that so but over overall the book has the response has been well so when you say that it that there was something risky about i i have a sense of what i think that means but could you say a little bit more what about why why it was risky yeah so I, I think th- you, I'm, I'm addressing, you know, three topics that, you know, you're not supposed to talk about at, at the dinner table. Oh, right. Yeah. Race, religion and politics. Um, but then also, I think the risk is tied up into the, the feel of my book is not within the genre that many people would kind of be familiar with. Um, I mean, the, the kind of familiarization that people have with the genre of Christian literature or theological texts. And so my book feels more like writing in the black literary tradition than it does out of the kind of black, black pastoral or theological tradition um, in the sense of it is almost like looking at this framework of God or, or experience and trying to move and maneuver around those theological frameworks within the kind of academic language or academic framework. Uh, so to write in that black literary tradition means that you run the risk of you know, you shooting. It's almost like the air get thin when you go, when you're trying to get to the Super Bowl. You know, mm-hmm. when you when you're playing in rec league, you know, it's it's a little bit easier to to quote unquote make it or to have your voice seen or to be heard. You know, when you play in college football, is it gets thinner. But then you go to the league, it gets thinner. But then you go to playoff football, it gets thinner. So to be inside of this kind of public writing space beyond just the kind of Christian space is is a risk in a sense you don't know how it's going to go um thankfully that my book 
has done well in the sense of like, I mean, there are people in the theological space. There are people in the writer world. There are people in politics. There are people in the academy. I mean, my book has traveled, you know, to various demographics and has found a home there, has found people who have resonated with the text and the content and the story and the narrative. So I'm 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 grateful for that. But then also there there is that ongoing risk of, you know, I'm I'm writing, I'm 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 shooting with the big ones, you know, and 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 I gotta come correct. So, you know, I feel like on, on the one level I did, you know, as a debut book, um, and tried to do very well as a thing, as I think about like writerly craft, not just just content, because I feel like in so many, like even I look to my left and I look at the my 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 study and 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 look at my library of 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 books on Christian literature. So either living Christian living on theology, on doctrine, on history, you know, so much of it stylistically is very similar. You it's, it's very academic. You start with a problem, and you 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 figure out how to contextualize that problem, and then you bring in theoretical frameworks to address the problem. Then you bring in your methodology. And then after that, the ways in which you're going to apply your principles. So you're kind of applied theology or you're applied history or you're applied this and applied that. My book doesn't do per se that type of work, even though I'm doing history, I'm doing theology, I'm doing philosophy, I'm doing theory. It's woven within the narrative. And so, you know, for, for, for me, that there's much to be left in that sense of, oh, you didn't answer questions. You didn't answer. You didn't answer, you know, because I mean, people were expecting me to like, OK, how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we do this? You know, but my book wasn't that sense. It wasn't it wasn't that type of theological text in the sense of trying to get somebody to think better about God or understand a history of a the theological argument or, or idea or experience. You know, nor was it like anti-racist text that that was centered on getting white people to think better about race and get and gain better education and frameworks. Now, it was a it was a love letter to myself, to my black self, to my black mama, to my black daddy, to my grandma, my granddaddy, to black people in general, uh, to young black people in particular. Uh, a love letter that will help us uh, navigate how to love ourselves and get free and become whole. Uh, particularly centered around the question, what does it mean to be black and American and Christian? Um, and so, yeah, that's that's probably more of the risk kind of workout. That segues nicely into actually the I only have a couple of questions typed out because I figured we'd probably just talk. But one one of the questions I wrote out that I really wanted to to get your take on uh, was this. So um, so here's this is something I used to think I no longer think this way. And I have my own reasons uh, for thinking that this is wrong, but I'm interested in your take on why this is wrong, assuming you think it's wrong. Okay, so here it is. Uh, well, I'm interested in why you think this is wrong. I used to think racism is a very real problem, but if we could just get white Christians to see the truth about justice, economic justice, criminal justice, uh, uh, criminal law, etc., and the truth about American history, redlining, Jim Crow, uh, and so on then white Christians would come to see that there are racist structures in our society that need to be reformed and see their own complicity and white Christians would stop advocating for unjust policies. Uh, so we don't necessarily need to talk explicitly about white supremacy in order to undermine mm -hmm. white supremacy. Mm -hmm. 
I, I used to think that way. So why, I, I want to know why you think this is wrong. Cause you, you, you talk about white supremacy in your book, right? And it's, it's, you know, as you point out, things get uncomfortable at that point. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, for starters, even when I hear that, you know, I think it centers whiteness too much that, mm. that it still believes that white people can save us, you know? And, and, and I think this is the kind of underlying idea as to why I did not want to write the text that way is that I don't want people to believe that people have who have benefited from centuries and centuries and centuries of racist power and, and, and privilege, you know, if they just think better, then, then, then they will fully and finally realize that things are, you know, they will give up a world that benefit them, you know, and, and, and change the world that can benefit everybody. Um, I think that framework, you know, is problematic because it's, it's, yeah, it's fully finally put it, placing our futures in the hands of white people. Um, and for me, I'm, I'm, I'm not of that perspective that, you know, if white Christians can, can learn, then they can change. Uh, because I'm not really concerned about, you know, what white Christians learn to learn or not. I am concerned about, you know, the world that we have to live in, particularly we as black folk, the world that we exist in. Um, but I, as Tony Morrison would say, you know, y'all need to solve that problem and you need to leave me out of it. Uh, of course, I would talk about the problematic frameworks of white supremacy and anti-blackness and homophobia, transphobia, patriarchy and sexism, because they all tie to, you know, these morals, these ideas, uh, these frameworks that's out of whiteness, uh, that have their history and traditions in whiteness and their power in whiteness. But it's like it's like, you know, white Christians have had centuries of opportunity to learn um, and we have died in the process. Just think about this. You know, we as black people and, and others, those who are indigenous, those who are immigrant and have come to this country, you know, we have died simply so that others can be better just to turn around and inherit a world where they benefit for their, from their own ignorance. That doesn't make sense, you know? And, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of why, like I would say, like I, I think it's a problematic framework because it just continues to put the power in white people's hands, even if in a good thing, like learning about justice, learning about uh, frameworks to, to, to get better, it still fully and finally centers them. And even if you're centered on, even if they learn better, how what did they learn about us they can see things better but don't still see us as equally human as worthy of the same type of study and embrace and compassion and and resources as them you know that's the whole problem with the ways in which many people think about black history month as we're recording this it's february it's black history month you know people are okay learning our names and a select flu of us they're not really okay with thinking about our, our, our the world that we live in or the world that we created. So to use the framework of your field, philosophy, so when we think about epistemology, you know, they're, they're thinking differently as it relates. They, they're, they're trying to go on a process where they're educated differently, but they still hold an epistemology, a way of seeing and naming and acting within the world that is very money, very fundamentally still about white power, white supremacy, white comfort, white resources. And for me, that kind of project of educating, getting people to think better, like we give up so much of ourselves and so much of what we have built just in hopes that people will finally say, okay, that hurt you and I wanna do something about it. 
that does not maintain my power and does not limit your humanity. I don't think that project is successful. So I would rather write to us and for us and about us. So how do you deal with problems of like um, voter disenfranchisement then? Something like that, like, like, like real world practical problems, right? The, all that, that makes perfect sense. You, you say, all right, we've been, we've been trying to explain things to these people for centuries. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we're not, we're not getting our due. Right. Um, and so I'm just going to focus on, um, how I exist in this world and I'm, I'm going to stop trying to explain things. Right. So, um, you still got like politically, practically a lot Mm -hmm. of white folks who are, I mean, enacting retrograde policies, right? Mm -hmm. So, so do you, Mm -hmm. are you, what, what's your reaction to that? Well, my first initial reaction is that being black and alive is a real world practical problem. So to, 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 to think about voting rights as the real problems and black people loving ourselves as like some other classification doesn't work in a sense you know it's like you know whatever 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 we do in this world and however we live is a quote-unquote real world practical problem because we are alive and i think a lot of times you know that's very paternalistic framework to think okay well the way black people want to see themselves want to do you know, things like that. So think about James Baldwin, think about Toni Morrison, think about Tony K. Bombard, think about Alice Walker, you know, to, to say simply because their literature, you know, wasn't concerned fully and finally with how to convince white people about voting rights as a mental exercise to say that they wasn't actually doing the work of shaping the real world is ignorant at wor- at, 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 at worst, arrogant in, 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 in all the likes. Uh, uh, or, or, or whatnot. Now, to to think about voting rights act and, and 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 things that affect our lives in our living. So, I would rather talk about that in that framework instead of compartmentalizing that framework. So, to to think about that, we are already doing that type of work. We we we're already. What's interesting is this: whether white people agree with voting rights or not, we are already on voting campaigns. Like whether they agree with voting rights act or not, we're all we, they're already get out and vote campaigns going on. There's already work that we have done. There's already black people in government doing that type of work in whatever way they do it, you know. But I, as I think about my work as a writer and and those other writers who who do work, some of us are going to be concerned, particularly about ways of thinking about voting rights, the Supreme Court, legal opinion, uh, 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 laws, and and how those laws affect life, particularly as we're thinking about critical race theory and the resistance to critical race theory, or I'm thinking something as simple as uh, uh, Richard Kruger's, uh, Kluger's book, uh, Simple Justice on uh, Brown versus Board of Education and, and the particular struggle uh, for, for, for education rights, or look, looking at these various cases about the ways in which the Supreme Court and the lower courts were formulated. There will be people who would do that work, you know, and, and that is the quote unquote real work, whatever affects our lives, 
you know, however we go and build our world, that is, of course, going to be a part of it. But I think it's a it's a it's not a worthy endeavor just simply to reduce our lives and our work to think that, OK, convince white people on the legitimacy of voting rights or on their history of being terrible on voting rights as if that's not the real work, like as if that is the real work It's convincing them rather than saying, I want us to be concerned about our lives and how we build our worlds and how we love ourselves and how we explore our history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, rather than simply being concerned about them um, and, and how they get better or how they progress. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that I, I would change that framework of the initial question to say it's a problematic framework uh, and a paternalistic framework and, and, and should be re kind of thought in the sense of, you know, voting rights is a part of our life. Voting is a part of our lives. And that story, that history, that reality is a part of us, you know, but that's not the only thing that affects us. So you alluded a minute ago to, to something else that I was hoping to talk about. Could you talk about the connection between um, racism and misogyny or white supremacy and, and misogyny? Yeah, I think, you know, as I've come to understand it, it's particularly through, you know, reading Bell Hooks or reading Dr. Mark Anthony Neal. I think when we thinking about racism, contextualistic history, you know, we, we have to say that the ways in which racism got power, particularly as a economic framework, as a political framework, as a theological framework, um, it's, it's all tied up as well in ideas of the ideal human. Um, and this is kind of thinking about Jennings, Willie James Jennings. So it's wrapped up in the ideal human being. Um, and, and, and of course, you know, especially in, in, in modernity, uh, this ideal human being is, is, is still a white man, you know, whether that was, you know, in, 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 in the formulation of colonialism or in the formulation of the person that should be educated in the academy, quote unquote. Uh, or the, 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 the person who should be ruling inside of home or civic society who is still bound to ideas of the white man. Um, and so oftentimes, you know, as, as we see racism as a practice, um, particularly bound, woven into white supremacy in history, it's, it's been wrapped up into the morality of what they believe, what someone believes to be the ideal person and what somebody believes to be other. So Tony Morrison has this incredible uh, essay on othering um, that, 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 that she wrote in um, The Origin of Others, where she says that one learns othering not by lecture or instruction, but by example. And so if we think about the othering and the ways in which misogyny as the practice of devaluing and humanizing women um, is, is a definition of that, of how we think about women and women's place in society, and particularly how we think about what hurts women and how we should create conditions where women are free and full autonomous human beings with agency. When we think about this othering, this, this history is, is, all, is, is, is woven all the way up until, I mean, until today, but I want to particularly think about racism and misogyny within the context of black life um, and, and particularly on the plantation 
So when like 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 black women's bodies were seen as 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 means of production, uh, so black women's sexuality was simply about how can they produce uh, for for the greatest kind of capital gain. So so one of the, one of the things that I think about with black women's bodies, black women's bodies were were seen as production uh, for capital. Um, it, it was seen. Uh, in a sense of performance, that that, that black women's bodies were were, were was means of uh, of performance, but also black women's bodies were means of reproduction. So the same you know kind of um, system, the economic system that plundered black people and devalued our bodies, and only saw our bodies as means of production, uh, was, was 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 for black women, men, and children. Nobody. You know, nobody really, you know, nobody was 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 away from that, you know, and things like that. It was all whether you're in the context of being in a field or whether you're in the context of being in a house, it's still the same dynamic of, of, mm -hmm. of power, of particularly white male power and the ability to determine where you go, how you go, who you go with, how long, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I would suggest people read M. Sean Copeland's In Flesh and Freedom, and she has a chapter uh, particularly on the ways in which black women, uh, black women's bodies has been continually used. And I would even say that that dynamic of power, those power dynamics is still at work. Now, when we think about racism and misogyny in black male bodies, we also have to think about that as well, that 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 we have to think about the ways in which like both black men and black women's bodies were used as means of productions. But then also the black men that we can still engage in misogyny inside of our own kind of familial, communal, social dynamic, um, which is oftentimes, you know, decentering black women, silencing black women, rendering black women invisible or 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 uh, or just means of sexual uh, gratification, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But all of these ideals, you know, of patriarchy, especially if we're thinking about in modernity. You know, of course, you see lingerings of this in pre in, in the pre-modern era and in ancient times, you see lingerings of these, but these frameworks that we're thinking about the world through, you know, so much of it rooted in modernity is woven out of the ways in which white people try to create and structure the world. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about your process uh, of you allude to this in, in the book? Um your process of realizing that. Um, you were participating in misogyny and how that was wrapped up in white supremacy and how you sort of disentangled that? Yeah, so much of like my, my process has been a long, long journey of reading, growing, relating to people differently, but then also so much of it is reflection in, in my own family and my wife and, and, and my friends. As I think about my process and, and the ways in which, you know, I participated within the, 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 the kind of white supremacists. Well, I, I would say bell hooks, she, she, she says it well, you know, the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, you know, the ways in which, you know, white supremacy, capitalism and patriarchy are so interwoven into these experiences and particularly these spaces, particularly white spaces. So like, as I think about my engagement in that space, you know, the ways in which I participate in white supremacy was devaluing blackness and distancing um, from us. But then also the ways in which I participate in, in, in misogyny and, and patriarchy uh, was even as I resisted white supremacy and white folk, I didn't necessarily deal with my own um, 
my own kind of way I thought about black women and black women's agency and autonomy in this space. So something is simply as who gets the mic when we start talking about black life, um, who, whose pain do we center in conversations around race, gender, sexuality, politics, religion, whose, whose pain is rendered invisible, whose body is rendered invisible. So, so much of my disentangling myself uh, was wrapped up in catalytic events happening, that being of Alton Sturden and Fernando Castile and Donald Trump, and then me changing and growing and thinking differently uh, and, and really me resisting this kind of white space. And, and, and I went through a moment where I tried to teach them better and was gracious with, with the community and tried to uh, get them to read differently and offer different frameworks and realize like that that's a that's a you're fighting a losing battle you know that 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 ship already gone and 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 then sailed um and so when I when I when that happened then also you know it's it's me trying to find myself and as I'm trying to find myself I'm realizing that that process of self discovery that process of self revelation we'll oftentimes reveal things that maybe we didn't necessarily intend to be revealed. Uh, when we, when you start trying to think about what it means to be human and what it means to be free and what it means to be equal, then oftentimes we have to give up and, or we, oftentimes we will give up, but we will also see the ways in which we saw others near us as less than human, as less than free, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so as I started to read differently, whether you're talking about James Baldwin James Cone, Katie Cannon, Toni Morrison, those who sit over my shoulders uh, every, every day I come to work and to think, as I think about the ways in which like I read them and how they read me and showed me ways in which I was homophobic, ways in which I was transphobic, ways in which, you know, I still, even though I was talking about racism, I didn't talk about how did it affect all black lives, not just black male lives. And so over time, uh, and it's been years and years in the making and still years going on, it's, it's me just trying to develop a discipline and a practice of growing, of learning, of challenging myself, of continually trying to evolve, um, and not just evolve because evolution is something that also can be marketable, um, but evolving because I actually want to grow and get better and want to love myself and love others. So June Jordan, a poet, um, black poet, black feminist poet, has a quote that that sits in my journal. She says that I am a black woman. And I am feminist. And, and me being a feminist, it means as much as it, to me as it means to be black. And she says this. It means that I will love myself and respect myself in such a way as if self-love and self-respect as my, my ideas of myself depended on my ability to have self-love and self-respect. And so for me, that idea, that, 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 that idea of self-love and self-respect is also taken into account where we have harmed ourselves and harmed others. And so as I write in my book, especially in the chapter womb, I mean, there were ways in which the church, it wasn't outside the church that I learned this, but it was inside the church where oftentimes when you're thinking about idea, theological ideas of original sin and purity, or you're thinking about how people exegete the text, or even based on your community, what texts you 
uh, what text you prioritize over other renderings and other readings, or how does one translate the text, or how does one receive traditions of translation, or does one even do that? And think about that, or whether they, you know, think they're doing that work, but when in actuality, what they're just are doing is just receiving propagandized traditions. Um, so, you know, doing that work of self-love and self-respect is taken into that account. That and that, you know, that process really changed my theology. You know, it was much different when I started. I started to think differently about God and myself and the world um, when I started reading M. Sean Copeland. Uh, I started thinking differently when I read Katie Cannon and, and Emily Towns. I started thinking differently about the world when I started reading James Cone and J.D. Otis Roberts. Uh, but then I started thinking differently about the world when I started reading Toni Morrison and James Baldwin and Tony K. Bambara. So, so much of me having self-love and self-respect and growing and changing was reading Black theologians and womanist theologians and deconstructing and decolonizing my own epistemology, deconstructing how I name myself in the world, how I acted, how I saw the world, uh, how I interacted with the world. But then also it was like reconstructing and reinventing myself. My, my friend Tracy in her book, Black Joy, has this beautiful uh, kind of section on reinvention uh, about the ways in which Black people have reinvented themselves. I'm thinking about like James Baldwin, when James Baldwin uh, in, in, the early in the late 1940s left you know, Harlem to go go over to France. And it's, it's this process of reinvention or even when black folk left plantations, process of reinvention, or even when we black folk in 1970s uh, declared that we are not Negro anymore, but we are black. Um, or even when, you know, black queer folk in the queer revolution would tell people and black women would tell people, yo, like we can be progressive and we can be feminist, but we also need to take into account an intersectional framework for how we understand the world. It's the process of reinvention. And when I think about the biblical text, you know, uh, Romans 12, that, you know, we, we, we should always be uh, trying to think about how we're renewing our mind and this process continually. Uh, theologians call it sanctification. Uh, others call it reinvention uh, or renewal or Methodist theologians call it renewal. So going through this constant process of challenging myself, trying to grow, trying to love others while also accepting myself and embracing myself. So much of that is how I change and continuing to change and try to show up in the world much better today. Yeah, there, there seems to me to be a really significant difference between uh, reading scripture primarily as a means of uh, confirming confirming who you believe yourself to be and confirming mm -hmm. who you believe others to be and just sort of getting ever more rigid about it versus mm -hmm. reading scripture and looking for things that challenge you to see the world in new ways, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, one mm -hmm. of those seems to me to be far more fruitful than the other <laughs> no 100 100 but then also you, you know we we oftentimes don't take into account the ways in which we read scripture or the ways in which we receive scripture that's probably the best way to think about it because oftentimes unless you're going to a seminary where you're reading somebody like timothy bill you know or you're reading somebody um 
like uh, Dominic Crossan or you're reading somebody. I mean, th those people who, who write on the Bible and, and, and really wrestle with the text, you know, or Peter Gomes and things like that. Unless you go into seminaries and you're reading Renita Weems and, and, and the brilliant ways in which Renita Weems uh, uh, talks about tradition and talks about the Hebrew Bible and gender and sexuality and things like that. If you're not reading uh, um, somebody like Gail Yee, uh, um, or, or Kwok Pulan. I mean, you're not reading people like Musa Dube and, and the ways in which they, they, they're kind of understanding the text and, and the biblical text in these frameworks, then we're not really taking into account how we're receiving tradition as much as, as much as if not more reading scripture, um, because we always read out of to the, the traditions and the frameworks in which, you know, we are socialized and discipled in. Um, and I think one of the many ways we, we struggle with the Bible is like it must always be, be pure and it must always have an answer. When in actuality, in, before the Bible is a book of purity, which is not at all, uh, or before the Bible is a rule book or answer book, um, it is a book of stories. So many people have understood the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth, whether people don't like that framework or not. Uh, we kind of perform that framework that we relate to the text as a way to teach us per se about how to to, to make it out of here um, or, or or whatnot. But the Bible, uh, I think a better acronym, a way to think about it is boundless illustrations becoming lived experiences. So from Genesis to Revelation and even in the apocryphal texts uh, uh, or, or other sacred texts, you, you see these stories being woven and people's relating to the divine, people relating to themselves, people relating to the land, people relating to their neighbor and trying to develop type of artifacts and frameworks to, to, to generate meaning. Um, and so you see in the text in first Samuel, uh, where Saul is anointed king and he's told you got to go back to Rachel's tomb. So you have these people have artifacts going back to her tomb. Then you're going to go to the I mean, you go you go you have ancestral history where people go back to ancestral history. Then you have you go to the brook at Tabor. You have a cultural artifact that has generated meaning. Then you're going to meet some prophets who are along the way. You have even within these kind of journeys of meaning making these stories, you have people being able to, to move and maneuver together, trying to find better ways of understanding themselves and being in the world. And so in a side of our sacred text, both in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scripture, you have this framework of stories where we receive these stories and they become our lived experiences. As uh, Rowan Williams, uh, one of my favorite theologians would say that, 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 that the people in the Near East uh, are not distant strangers, but they're just like us. Uh, but we have to be taught how to read the Bible that way. And that's a courageous endeavor uh, because oftentimes so many of the ways we thought about God or salvation or redemption or, or, or whatever, all these kind of frameworks that we have received in, in, in the Middle Ages and beyond, uh, so many of the ways we thought about these kind of his, historized and culturally uh, uh, um, uh, situated frameworks um, so many ways we thought about these things, we realized that, okay, we need to rethink them or rethink our relation to them or rethink the relevance of those frameworks for how we're trying to live in our various moment, realizing that God is still ongoing, that, that conversation between the divine, between God and us 
uh, it's still the God of our ancestor, but it's also God is the God of the now who wants to speak to us in our moments. And in the same ways in which, you know, Sam uh, Saul was someone who had to go back to the ancestors, had to go back to cultural artifacts, had to go meet different people is the same ways in which we should think about our lives as religious people in general and Christians in particular, especially those of us who are trying to uh, exist at this intersection of lived experiences and theology and even philosophy in your field. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm fascinated by, by how much uh, debates that are allegedly about biblical interpretation actually come down to, I mean, what's really going on is there, uh, it's a contest for power, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you've got the, in the Protestant tradition, which itself came out of a contest over power, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In the Protestant tradition, there's this idea that has that has gotten, I mean, say what you will about the coherence of this idea, you know, to begin with, but it's gotten more and more corrupted over time. This idea that you can just sit down and read the Bible and understand what it means without regard for, you know, any kind of deference to, tradi- to, to tradition. The idea that you're reading it in the absence of, of a tradition of reading it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That, and, that, and that actually is a I mean, I, I am surprised that there are so many debates in general, <laughs> you know, uh, that's that's well, the thing that's going is, the, is, is the people who want to say, no, it's just the Bible itself. And oh, by yeah. the way, it's the Bible yeah. um, as I as I tell you it, what it means. Wanted. But I, I believe that way as well. At one point in time in life, I mean, I very much like in the reformed kind of world that 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 kind of evangelical reform world that there's only one way to read the bible etc cetera, et cetera. but i mean that's in that's in the way i was raised too as a black pentecostal even though you know people believe that there were one way to read the bible they still was like yo white people ain't reading the bible right so we ain't listening to what what white people say we're going to develop our own alternative readings you know but they still believe that like there was one way to read the text and 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 what's so crazy is like you know, I mean, that makes the Bible very, a, a very uninteresting document, um, a, a very powerless document. Um, it, it just I, and, and really, to truth be told, had I not read the likes of a Renita Weems or a Victor Anderson or uh, a Katie Cannon or Marcus Borg or, or I'm just thinking about all these people who just like love thinking about the Bible. I'm even thinking, I would even say N.T. Wright in that way or Rowan Williams. Um, just think about all these people that surround me in my house. Like there's literally sections upon sections in my, in my, in my house on biblical interpretation. Um, and I'm even thinking about, there's a really, really good book. Uh, let me find it really quickly. Um, there's a really, really, really good book that I love. Um, um, Oh, Will the Gaffney's uh, Womanist Midrash. Um, or, or, uh, I haven't oh, heard of that. That sounds interesting. Oh, my goodness. Oh, 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 my goodness. I mean, Dr. Will the Gaffney is, 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 is one of the premier biblical interpreters. I mean, Dr. Gaffney and Missy Smith, um, uh, Renita Weems, uh, Musa Dube, um, Shel Townsend Gilks, uh, Carol. Um, uh, what's her name? Uh, her name is Carol uh, something. So the, uh, 
So Voices of the Margin, she's in that book. Um, the, the book that I was thinking about, the Bible, is, is, is entitled Voices from the Margin. Um, and, and who is her? I'm literally drawing a blank on her name. She's a Black woman, biblical interpreter. She's a professor. And I'm drawing a blank on her name right now. Her name is Carol something. Uh, but nonetheless, that if I had not read these people, the main point is this, if I had not read these people, these men and women, um, those who were gay, those who were straight, um, you know, those who were young, those who were old, those who were in various traditions, had I not read them and just saw the many ways in which the Bible can come alive in these traditions. And I, I mean, at one point, I mean, the Bible was very uninspiring to me and very just it just was, it was a rote memory thing. Um, and had I not read them, then the Bible would have still been that way. Um, but to see uh, the Bible as a text of imagination and liberation and not being able to be held, controlled, it's almost like when the, when the boys was on the road to Emmaus and Jesus appears, shares a word with them and then leaves. It's as if Jesus is suggesting that faith, the aspect of it, an experience of it cannot be controlled that there are aspects that's close enough to touch, close enough to converse with, but far enough way that you can't control it. And when he leaves, they, they have no awareness of, nor do us. We don't know what Jesus did in that moment once he left. And that should be okay with us. There's another one where Jesus is talking to the disciples. There's another person healing in Jesus' name and the disciples start griping. You know, and Jesus says, you know, if they're not for me, I mean, if they're not against me, they're for me. The interesting part about the text, <clears throat> we get no social, we get no political, we get no religious marker, we get no sexual orientation marker, we get nothing in the text. The text is silent. And learning from these cohort of voices on the Bible have allowed me to dance and imagine in the silence, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a mystic aspect to it. And, and it's, I mean, that's actually what um, faith has in some ways become, uh, the notion of faith has become associated with like, you know, sort of being synonymous with embracing a certain kind of tradition, like, oh, that's my faith, right? Mm -hmm. um, rather than, rather than, and we, we've kind of, I think, in some contexts moved away from thinking of faith as something that's active, and then involves belief in the absence of, you know, what you might think of as adequate confirmation or evidence, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 is, it is belief in uh, the midst mm -hmm. of, I, I think, what you're calling silence, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Want it, want it. And I think, I think for me, the ways in which I feel the silence, especially in my own book, you know, my own work is... Is, is listening to the voices of, 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 of black literature um, to, to, to listen to that tradition, to help me better understand embodying faith, not arguing about it, but living it out, weaving it in how I think, but also doing it in creative ways. Like one could not, you know, read the fire next time and say that James Baldwin is not doing theology. You can't read the color purple and say that Alice Walker is not doing theology. You can't read Paradise, Toni Morrison's Paradise, saying she's not doing theology, or Tony K. Bambara's 
uh, text, um, the salt eaters on, on, on healing and wholeness and not saying that she's not doing theology or somebody like Maya Angelou uh, in her memoirs or June Jordan or Richard Wright or Gene Tuma. I mean, their worlds are packed with the, the, the lingering of the divine, but also the experience of black life and the ways in which they write black life on the page um, and, and the many traditions of, of black writers that come after them. And so, like, I, I think that 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 silence of, of of both the text and the tradition, you know, can, can be can be imagined in can 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 be lived in. It's OK uh, to, to to linger in the silence, you know, because God has something to say for us there. And so for me, what I've tried to do is try and listen to that silence, particularly centered around black literature, even my journey going home. So home plays a huge part in my book, like yeah. this journey home. Uh, or thinking about the future or thinking about black futures like that plays those two ideas play huge roles in 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 my text and so as i linger in the science thinking theology about that 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 really was you know part of like the theology that i was trying to even do is that say like you know, our lives our black lives are everyday the everyday ordinary power of black life and the ways we make the world and create the world and make ourselves and recreate ourselves is part of God being within that. So the last line, we catch our breath again. We're exhausted, but we catch our breath again. This is what I saw. The hope was in the struggle and God was in the hope. Like it was all in the living. Like that is where the divine is found is in the ways in which we are divine or we or, or which we are alive. And so Alice Walker, one of my favorite Alice Walker quotes, he says, I am expression of the divine as much as the flower is. And I'm not going to change that. And so I believe that, too. If people say the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof and all that dwell within, then black people have to be a part of that fullness. Gay people have to be a part of that fullness. Women, trans people, rich, rich people, poor people, like those who are in our country and not in our country, um, they have to be a part of that expression as they are trying to be fully alive and love and become whole and more human rather than being less. When we're not doing that, we're not being the expression of the divine. We're being the expression of what destroys us. And so I just simply want to do that and say like our lives are not lessons to teach people are not ways for people to get better, but our lives are worthy in and of itself that we are black, we are beautiful and we're worthy of the deepest love. It's beautiful. Um, you've talked a, a lot in our conversation here, and and you, it, it comes through in your book. By the way, I love the way you use space in your book. Um, mm. uh, it, it really, it's really integrated with uh, sort of your spiritual development, and it's, I mean, it really comes through. Um, uh, but you've you've talked about this a bit, and I wonder if you might say more about the um, connection between lived experience and practice and sort of uh, the epistemic or cognitive aspects of faith. One, one of the things that's really, uh, I think, helps me develop um, a better understanding of sort of like what's going on around us and the ways that 
um, the uh, certain people who invoke the Christian tradition uh, are sort of manipulating people um, is coming to a better understanding of how, of the connection between belief and behavior. Mm. Uh, because, you know, like I'm a philosopher and I sense, I sense a kindred spirit uh, in, in you that there, there's this kind of, uh, you know, cerebral aspect of things. And it's like, I'm going to think it through and figure it out. And then I'm, and like, then I'm going to, you know, in terms of like natural inclination, temperament, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my thought is always like, I'm going to work this out in my head and then, uh, and then I'll go out and, and do, right? But that's just mm-hmm. not how human beings work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, what you do affects what you believe, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and often behavior comes before belief and you are just enculturated into a certain way of believing. Uh, whether you know it or not. And the mm-hmm. sense in which faith without works is dead. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're, if you don't do right, you will not believe right. And on, on a long mm-hmm. enough timeline, bad behavior uh, produces bad beliefs. You, mm-hmm. you just can't separate them in the way that, uh, you know, Maybe some folks pretend. Yeah. So could you talk about that? Yeah. So I am not a philosopher. I just like to read. Um, so whatever I say about this is, is I bring that inherent limitation here. Um, but I, I think, I think so much of, as I think about lived experience and I think about my lived experience, I think about others lived experience. So I think about how people try to deny those lived experiences or try to say that those lived experiences are not our most important or worthy of authority or worthy of being engaging, engage, I, I think the connection, if, if, if I think about the connection and trying to develop a way to think about that connection, especially in the framework of this conversation, which is on like, you know, how whiteness harms us, how black experiences, lived experiences are authority. I think about it that way, that in the sense of power and marginalization, that our lived experiences you know, we are shaped and we shape our lived experiences and how we see the world is is pretty much based on the experience that we have. And so like, I'm thinking even today where I'm on and talking about Mike McDaniel, who just took over the Miami Dolphins. And he says, you know, I don't have any experience with racism or race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but he's biracial. And so because he doesn't, have or suppressed or either denied or, or 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 was protected from that experience then you know he doesn't have a framework but indeed he does have a framework because the ways in which he talked about that experience was very hostile dismissive etc cetera, etc cetera, et cetera. so it's it's harder to talk about what we know versus like what we suppress and what we don't want to know but I do think that there is in the in, in the conversation about theology and the conversation about society, we have to take into account how some experiences are worthy of authority in the framework of society and, and the academy and the church than others. Some are more worthy because they protect power, they keep the same script going, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And that we as people we need to always be thinking about who is not being heard and who's not being listened to. Mm-hmm. 
And we can't listen to them or hear them if we're not close enough to take their lived experiences as serious ways of thinking about the world. So I read in uh, Terion Williamson's uh, Scandalize My Name, uh, Black Feminist Practice and the Making of Black Social Life, I think that's the title, where she talks about, you know, these lived experiences of Black people, where she says that, that, that the Black world, she calls it the Black world, that, that, that the ways in which we have created the world, the ways in which we have shaped the world is as much a starting point as any other place, particularly as you're thinking about white, white places. But too, too often when you're talking about uh, whiteness, you're talking about sexism, you're talking about misogyny, uh, you're talking about capitalism, whoever is in power will normalize the experience and judge everybody, their goodness, their morality, their future, et cetera, their worth against those experiences. So if we want to do better in thinking about that, I think we need to read better about, you know, frameworks of experience and epistemology, at least as a ongoing framework of thinking. Like we should be reading philosophy and, 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 and sociology as a, as a general practice of being human, of trying to think about society. So people need to be reading Patricia Hill Collins' Black Feminist Thought uh, because she does incredible work in that on Black womanhood and epistemology in the framework of society. People need to be reading these books. I see even Kendi stand from the beginning on the back of your, on, on your shelf. People need to be reading that book to look at the definitive ideals of racist, the definitive history of right, racist ideals in America, because these ideas in America are wrapped up in whose experience we believe to be valid and whose experience we believe to not be valid. And you could tell so much about a space or about people based on whose experiences, you know, we, we, we take into account and who we listen to. And so I think, I think if we, we create a framework where we're always engaging, you know, and, and trying to get better, trying to think better, trying to be better in engaging and in, in live living together, I don't think that that's going to make it happen i'm not an optimist in that sense so i'm really not an optimist in general in life uh, as a principle um um but but i am you know i i i think that that we can be better as human beings i do believe in the human capacity to to get better um and, and our ability to think better and become better because i've seen it in others i've seen it in myself you know and and i think as as, as those who are christian you know we always need to hold that out for people you know, that possibility of grace and, 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 and being better. Um, but I don't think that like learning differently, being differently going to shape um, how people think, because it's all, it's all wrapped up also in the environment. Like, like, like choices are shaped by what choices are given, what choices are cut off, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's probably the beginning ways that I will fumble through the question of lived experiences and behavior and thinking about like, yo, we need to be listening broadly to various lived experiences as we think about our own particularized lived experience as well. Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I think I think the the effort, and I think this comes through in questions of like just about everything we've talked about, whether it's biblical interpretation or um, you know trying to approach social questions like like whatever the the mm. attempt to sort of deny that perspective is relevant is nothing other than um, just imposing a single perspective. Right? Mm. 
Mm. Um, and that's how a lot of evil gets done, I think, in the church and in mm. society is saying, no, perspective isn't relevant here, which means my perspective is the one that that really counts. Mm. Well, Dante, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Yeah, I think we we both have parenting uh, responsibilities to attend to. Um, and you've, uh, you've given me some titles to look up. I really appreciate that. Oh yeah. Wonderful. 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 Well, uh, there's a lot to look up. There's a lot of study in your field. Stuart Hall is critical. Okay. Uh, Stuart Hall and Patricia Hills Collins. If, if, if you don't look up two people, look them up. Stuart Hall, Patricia Hill Collins, Sadia Hartman. Yeah. They're just critical in, in your field of study. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dante. Thank you for the book. Uh, again, oh, that book you. is Shout in the Fire, an American Epistle. Highly recommend. Um, I appreciate I appreciate you. I appreciate your, what you're doing. And um, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And I always do this after every interview. To those who listen to the podcast, who continue to engage, who show up and share, I want to thank you as well. Uh, Scott could not do because Scott could not do any of this, and that's babies or whatnot. Scott could not do any of this without you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sante. Yeah. All right, brother. You be blessed, man. All right, you too. Thank you so much. All right, for sure. Take care. Mm-hmm.